So the nation of Israel, when they were, uh, before they were the nation of Israel, if you remember the story, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then as Moses leaves Israel and he goes uh, wandering about the wilderness, he's walking along one day and he comes across a bush set ablaze, but not being consumed. And he walks over to him and says, let me see what this thing is. And there he meets, if you remember Yahweh, this uh, God meets him in the bush and says, I'm sending you back to my people Israel to bring them up out of Egypt. And then Moses says, well, how will they know that you sent me? And who am I to say sent me? And he says, I am sent you, right? He gives him the divine name Yahweh. And then Moses goes back to Egypt and you all know the story, but God does uh, 10 signs and wonders and draws Israel up out. And then as they come out of Egypt, they follow this pillar of fire from camp to camp to camp to camp. Ultimately, it's the pillar of fire that comes between them and the army of Egypt to rescue them, right? For 40 years, they wander through the wilderness following this pillar of fire, right? It became so much a part of their identity that you could probably call them a people who followed the pillar, right? Well, then 700 years later, after they come up out of Egypt, they've now become a kingdom. Because of sin, that kingdom is split in two. The northern kingdom is about to go into captivity in Assyria. The southern kingdom pretty soon is going to go into captivity in Babylon. And then the prophet Isaiah is sent by the Lord and through the prophet Isaiah, God makes a promise. And it's out of Isaiah 42, 6. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So he brought them up out of Egypt through this pillar of fire. And then as they fall back into sin and fall back into slavery, he promises to send a light one more time. All right, so fast forward, you get to the Feast of Tabernacles, the second temple period. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, this is the really cool part, I promise you. On the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the court of the treasury, they would light these 75 foot tall torches. Each torch had four lamps on it. And as they would light it, all the men of the city would go about dancing, singing, rejoicing. They were celebrating the pillar of fire that they had followed through the wilderness. And they were anticipating the pillar of fire that God had promised in Isaiah he would send back to draw the people, right? So on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus, standing underneath these 75-foot torches, stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. So this morning, what I want us to do is take a look at two things. What did Jesus mean when he says, I'm the light of the world? And what should we do about it, right? I'll just be real honest with you on the front end. This uh, is one of uh, the most elusive texts in the Bible, but it's also one of the most direct. So what I'm gonna do this morning is stick really tight to the text. I'm gonna lay a couple of things out for you that are just facts, so we're going to go on a little fact expedition. And then at the end, we're going to talk about an imperative. We're going to talk about how we ought to respond. Sound good? All right, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to John 8, verses 12 to 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I 
in the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you, and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So when Jesus stands up and he says, I'm the light of the world, the first thing I want us to notice is that he infers that there's darkness. But if you remember back to Isaiah 42, the darkness he's talking about isn't just the the darkness of night or the absence of light. He's talking about slavery and bondage and blindness. And so specifically, Jesus is talking about our slavery to sin. If you remember back uh, in Genesis 3, when um, our very first parents first committed the first sin, what they originally did is they were designed for dependence, talked about this before, but then they decided they wanted to attempt independence, right? And so it was this attempt at independence that cast the world into the curse of death and our slavery to sin. And the thing I want you to see from the text this morning is that sin has consequences, right? Take the Pharisees, for example. The, uh, those of you who um, have studied a little bit of the, Old, of the New Testament know this. The Pharisees were the bootstrappers of Old Testament Israel, or frankly, that matter, intertestamental period, uh, Israel. Their authority came through study, hard work, and discipline. There were, when Jesus says the authorities, that's the people who sort of inherited their position. Either they were wealthy or... Uh, Maybe they were the son of a high priest, but the Pharisees were the people who started out as fishermen, started out as small business owners or families of small business owners, and then gave their lives to the study of the Torah, right? They're the people who place their worth, their entire identity in presiding over the religious life of Israel, right? 
And so now you come to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the big moments in Israel's uh, year, but also just in their life in general. And Jesus has two things to say to them. The first one is verse 21. He says, you will die. Jesus says that even though you've given your life to the study of the Torah, and to presiding over Israel's religious life, it still will not save you. And then in verse 15, he says a second thing to them. He says that your judgment's broken. In other words, he says, uh, you judge according to the flesh, which is another way of saying you judge according to human standards, right? See, the Pharisees, because they attempted independence, they were so uh, fixated on their identity as the religious leaders that it led to insecurity. And that insecurity ultimately led them to miss Jesus when he showed up, right? Imagine this, they spent their whole entire life governing and leading out of the scriptures and a set of festivals that were pointing to one who was gonna come. And then when he comes, they miss him. The whole entire purpose of their life ends up going right in front of their face. And here's the thing about them is they weren't being Jewish. They're being human. We are exactly the same as the Pharisees. A little bit different. There's some, some minor differences, but the big categories are the same. We turn to things like careers and families and church plants and 401ks for life, but we still die. Right in the midst of the good work the Lord has given us to do, we end up pulled away from it, right? It doesn't end up saving us. And then the second thing is, is because of sin, we're not even sure where life comes from. Our ability to identify what's good for us, our ability to know how to pursue it is broken, right? And so what I want you to see the first thing in the text is that when Jesus stands up and says he's the light of the world, the darkness he's inferring is a predicament. If you are human, it means that you face the reality of death and you face the reality of not knowing what's good for yourself. And if we stop there, that would be really, really bad news this morning. But you gotta set the darkness to understand the contrast of the light. Right? So right in the midst of the darkness of sin and death and its consequences, Jesus himself stands up underneath uh, the anticipation of the pillar of fire and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so a couple of things I want you to see this morning as we talk about that is, um, what does Jesus mean by being the light of the world? And I want you to see two things. The first one is uh, what he says about himself or his person. And then ultimately what he says about the work or why he came, what he came to do and why he came to do it. So the first thing in terms of his person, I want you to notice in verse 26, it says that he's sent by God and that what he declares is the very words of God himself, right? So the mission of Jesus is the mission of God. The second thing I want you to see is in verse 19, he says that to know him is to know God. He says that if you knew me, you would know my father also. So he escalates from the mission of God to intimacy with God is tied up in the person of Jesus. But the real kicker is buried in the text. You won't see it in our English version. Uh, 
But it's in verse 24 when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, that word he is supplied by English. It's not there in the Greek. And a fact you should know before that is uh, at this, around this time when Jesus is standing up and teaching, the um, Greek civilization had spread pretty wide. And so they'd begun to translate the Old Testament scriptures. And by now the thing that people were using the most is called the Septuagint. It's a Greek version of the, of the scriptures. It's kind of like our ESV or our NIV. And do you remember when Moses met Yahweh in the burning bush and he said, who, who, who should I say sent me? And Yahweh says, I am. Translated into Greek, that word is ego and me. It's the name of God. And right here, Jesus stands up and says, unless you believe ego and me, unless you believe I am. Jesus stands up and says, unless you come to believe that I am God himself, not just access to him and not just the mission of God, but the person of God, you will die in your sins. So it leaves us this morning with the question, why does that matter? Why is it necessary uh, that God himself comes to rescue us? And I'll just tell you, it has everything to do with salvation. So on one hand, uh, in order for Jesus to rescue us, he had to be our representative, which means he had to be man. He had to be able to take our place. And walking around the uh, ancient roads of Palestine, it was clear that Jesus was man. They could touch him, they could hug him, he would sweat, they would pray with him. But the second thing that's necessary is that to rescue us, Jesus had to also be God. And the reason is, is that rescue had to come from the outside. It had to come from outside of sin. And so only a sinless one, only a good one, could actually accomplish it. And so Jesus stands up and says, the light that Isaiah was promising would come has come. I'm God in the flesh. Here's a useful analogy. There was a, um, a hiker hiking the Appalachian Trail from uh, basically right around North Carolina, not all the way down to Georgia, who made it up into Maine and got into the country where um, the SEER school is, those of y'all in the Navy, it's where they go do uh, survival and evasion um, training. So it's a really, really dense set of woods. And she gets up in there and she, y'all might've read this story already, but she gets up in there and she, she loses her way off the AT. She ends up wandering off into the woods and for 26 days, she searches for a way out. She even gets up to the highest point in the area, sets up camp, and the sad reality is 26 days later, she died from exposure and from starvation. The issue was not that she couldn't get up high. And the issue wasn't that she didn't realize she was lost. The issue was the woods were so dense, she couldn't make her way out. That at every single turn, she would make it a couple feet and then would have to turn back. She was stuck in the inside, and what she ultimately needed was someone to come from outside of that deep, dense woods and come in to rescue her. See, that's exactly what God is promising in Isaiah 42, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. He says that exactly into the deep, dense woods of our sin and the curse of death, the pillar of fire has shown up. That's good news if you're walking around in darkness, to have the pillar of fire show up from the outside committed to leading you 
back on the way out. So when Jesus stands up, it has everything to do with salvation, right? The second thing I want you to notice is uh, what does he say about why he came? That's another way of saying, how did Jesus save us? He could have come and he could have given us a philosophy. He could have given us uh, a list of self-help tricks. He could have set up a kingdom. He could have literally overthrown the Romans and frankly, the Israel leadership at that moment and establish a kingdom, but he didn't do any of that. What does Jesus do right as he says, I'm the light of the world? Read verse 29. I'm joking, read verse 28. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father has taught me. See, when Jesus shows up and declares that he's the light of the world, the first thing he does is he then points them to the cross. Why does he point us to the cross? I heard someone say a few months ago that the the cross of Christ is like the door hinge of our faith. A lot of men were crucified 2,000 years ago, but only one of them lived a perfect life, then was crucified, and then rose from the dead. See, when Jesus says, when you've lifted up the son of man, then you will realize that I'm the one who was sent to rescue you. What he's saying is he's pointing us to his work on our behalf, to the way that he accomplishes redemption for us. See, Jesus did a couple of things. He lived a perfect life. You know, when he says later that I always do what pleases the father, right? And then remember the curse of death that we were talking about as a consequence of sin, we're given over to death. Jesus then submits himself to the cross to die on our behalf. But then you know what's sweet is he doesn't stay in the tomb. I'm reading this book with Caleb right now. And after Jesus dies, it says the, the, his friends went to look for him and he wasn't there. <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. And see what's sweet about that is if you remember uh, back to our first attempts at sin, is sin is really about independence, Right? We're designed for dependence, but we look for life on our own. And so it makes sense that Jesus would rescue us in a way that restores us to dependence. He came and lived a perfect life so that our salvation wouldn't be based on our own merits. We have to depend on Jesus for our righteousness. The second thing is then he dies so that the death that we're facing won't consume us and destroy us. So even in death, we depend on Jesus. And then what's sweet is when he rises from the dead, he exchanges our future for his, right? All of our pipe dreams. We don't have access to them anymore, but even our future is dependent on Jesus. So one thing I just want to say this morning is um, one of the sweet things about being in Christ is that even when you come to the eve of death. You come to the the doorstep of death. What the gospel says, what Jesus being the light of the world means is that you're no longer facing despair, but you are staring resurrection in the face. That's good news and that's joy. What that means is that if you're lost in deep darkness and then you meet the pillar of fire, salvation's come. All right, so I just laid out a couple of facts for you. 
One is the reality of our darkness. The second is the reality of who Jesus was. There's not a lot of illustration in there. Those are just straight from the text. Now we've got to consider how are we supposed to respond to these facts. And before we talk about that, there's three more things to notice about the light. So when Jesus stands up and he says, uh, he's underneath the pillar of fire and he calls out to the crowd, the simple fact that he stood up means that it's an invitation. He calls the people to come follow him, right? So what that means is that salvation isn't something we accomplish for ourselves, but it's something that we accept. It's something that was already done on our behalf. The second thing is that when Jesus says he's the light of the world, the invitation's a broad invitation. There's no race or gender or economic status or geographic status that separates you from the invitation of Christ. If you are human, the call to salvation is for you. But then the third thing I want you to see is that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, his invitation is exclusive. Salvation's only in Christ. And salvation's not, just be real blunt with you this morning, salvation's not even in being Christian. He says he is the light of the world, meaning his person and his work on our behalf is salvation, right? So Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. He calls us, invites us to come to him, but he says salvation's only in himself. And so that leaves us with two available responses. The first one's fairly obvious. You can remain in the darkness. Jesus uh, refers to this as choosing to believe that he's not the one that God sent. That's another way of saying every, all the facts I just laid out for you this morning, you can choose to believe that they're not true. That's available to you. But you know, when Jesus goes on to say, uh, you will seek me, I'm going away, you will seek me, you will die in your sin, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Remember I was saying the text can be a little ambiguous, but it's also fairly direct. It's like, what in the world is Jesus talking about when he said, even they asked the question, where is he gonna go? Is he gonna kill himself? What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, unless you believe that I'm he, you will search for God. You will search for life. And even if you spend your entire life searching, you will not find it. You can only find God. You can only find life in the person and work of Jesus. And so the reality is, is if you choose uh, not to believe that, then Jesus is saying, or the text is saying, that you're on your own. You're stuck in darkness. And usually we, we think about this as, um, you know, just for people that aren't in Christ. So if you're here this morning and uh, you're investigating the claims of Jesus, I'll just tell you, that's what this text says. The text says that life is only in Christ. But you know, this text is just as true for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for decades. If you've been walking with him for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, we're still capable of looking for life apart from him. And what this text is saying is that when you do that, you won't find it. Life only comes through the person and work of Jesus. 
And so then we come to the second response. What does Jesus say? He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think it's so interesting that Jesus doesn't say whoever believes in me. Don't you? Jesus says the opposite of unbelief is followership. See, following someone is operationalized belief. It's more than just intellectual assent. It's actually living out of that. One way to say it is that knowledge becomes belief when you act upon it, right? So it leaves us with a question this morning, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And I want to be super careful this morning that we don't fall into moralism. It would be so natural for us to take this text and then line up the 10 commandments and say, go do all this stuff. Be good, be a Pharisee. That's not what Jesus does. What following him means is to be governed by him. It means to submit to him. Another way of saying that is it means to become dependent on him. And so I want to give you three really obvious uh, ways it means to follow him, which flow directly out of the will of Christ for us. The first one is to cease from your own righteousness and find your rest in his. What's that mean? Ceasing from your own righteousness means uh, stop becoming preoccupied with how good or bad you are or how well you've done something or how poorly you've done something but find rest in the fact that Jesus always does what's pleasing to the Father. And he did that for your, on your behalf and exchanges it with you. The second thing it means to follow Jesus is honest confession. Another way of saying the acknowledgement of particular sin, but also just your general sinfulness. But the harder part of that is it means actually living out of the assurance of pardon. You know that? Confession can be such a, a, a useful and convenient type of penance. If I just say everything I did wrong and I say it meaningfully enough and I'm contrite enough about it, then I'll be saved. But salvation rests in the assurance of pardon. And so confession is just the way that we accept that pardon. The third thing that it does mean is it means exchanging our own bad advice, our own misguided judgment, our own misguided dreams for the living and active word of God. It does. It means that if you are stuck in the deep, dense, dark woods of sin, if that's the reality, and then the pillar of light shows up, it allows the pillar of fire to lead. What that means is that this text with Jesus says points to him and that he came to fulfill, but not a single stroke of it will pass away until he returns. It doesn't mean living your life according to this book. It means searching out Jesus in this book and responding to him. So here's the good news this morning. For those of you or those of us who choose to follow the pillar of fire, who choose to believe the facts that I just laid out for you, who choose to find rest in the redemption that's already been accomplished for you. Jesus makes two really, really sweet promises. And they're right in the beginning. 
The first one is he promises you'll never walk in darkness. What that means is you will never, ever, ever be alone. Jesus promises that you, he will never, ever, ever abandon you. Never leave you to your sin. Never leave you to death. Never leave you to slavery. The second thing it means is that you won't just find life, but you'll have life. You know what Jesus promises to the people who uh, can believe this about him is that Jesus makes himself your own. He takes his person and his work and he gives it to you. And so the sweet news of the gospel is that God came from above, that God himself stepped down into creation, lived for us, died for us, rose for us. If we're able to believe that, and by that I mean find comfort and find rest in the gospel, then he promises he'll never leave you. And he promises that you will have and not just look for life. And so what I long for us this morning is that we become a people who can follow Jesus. That we become a people who can follow the pillar of fire out of the deep, dark, dense uh, curse of our sin and death. So let's pray. Jesus, you accomplished our redemption. And Lord, our rest is in you. Our peace is in you. Our salvation is in you. Lord, in your word, you laid out a clear set of imperatives, a clear set of facts about yourself, a clear set of uh, things that we should respond to, and then you call us to believe them. You call us to live out of them. And what that means is that you call us to take you up on your offer of redemption. You call us by faith to believe that you've already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for salvation. And so, Lord, as a people, we pray that you would constitute us in your word, in your gospel, that you would make us a people who live out of the joy of your salvation. And, Lord, we pray that you would make us a people that take the news of your salvation into our city and to the ends of the earth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.